This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to another episode of New Books in Religion. I'm your host, Christian Peterson. For each program, we choose a new book that's especially interesting, and we chat with the author of that book. For this program, I had the pleasure of speaking with Brent Plate, professor of religious studies at Hamilton College, about his wonderful book, Religion and Film, Cinema and the Recreation of the World. As each frame of a film goes by, we witness a new world that is situated in space and time. This process of world-making happens through the cinematic lens, but also through the myths and rituals of religious traditions. Or so argues Brent Plate in this wonderful new book, Religion and Film. In this short work, Plate sets out to create a critical religious film theory and demonstrates how understanding religion and film can help us comprehend the other in more nuanced ways. Through a close examination of mise-en-scene, editing, and cinematics, we discover the interrelationship of the world we live in and the one on the screen. Plate reveals that film serves many of the same functions myth and ritual do in defining space and time. Both Hollywood blockbusters and avant-garde films present a way of understanding the world and reveal a new visual ethics. Plate also tells us what happens when film leaves the movie theater and re-ritualizes contemporary experience. In our conversation, we discuss film techniques, Star Wars, Blue Velvet, The Matrix, the sensual aspects of religion, the altar and the screen, ethics, aesthetics, myth, ritual, and Plate talks about his role in developing new features in the Journal of the American Academy of Religion. Without further ado, here's the interview. Welcome to another episode of New Books in Religion. Uh, Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Brent Plate about his a uh, wonderful new-ish book, uh, Religion and Film, Cinema and the Recreation of the World. Welcome, Brett. Thanks for spending some time with us. Great. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me on your show. Yeah. Um, I really enjoyed your book, and uh, it, it actually took me in some directions I wasn't uh, expecting from some of the other literature I've read on religion and film. So um, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting into those details. But before we uh, get into the book, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, um, how you got interested in religion, how you got interested in film, um, and how, how you kind of became one of the leaders in this field? 
Yeah, sure. Um, I am, uh, well, I'll tell you, I'm currently, I'm visiting associate professor of religious studies at Hamilton College, upstate New York, sitting here waiting for a hurricane to come through our backyard and uh, all that kind of stuff, but uh, things are good for now. Uh, I've been here for a few years. I used to teach at uh, Texas Christian University for several years. Uh, I taught at uh, University of Vermont for a couple of years and the Atlanta College of Art. Uh, so I've tried a different uh, number of different places, number of different kinds of of students and um, you know really enjoyed all of them and I, I find in teaching religious studies that uh, having been able to use things like film and the arts and music and popular culture in general of course just allows some kind of inroads into teaching uh, religious studies that um, you know opening a big old book doesn't uh, quite uh, do the same thing for not that we don't open some big old books but um, you know some other other ways to do it so a lot of a lot of it is just my own personal research, but it's very much coupled. It's always my teaching and my research writing have, have gone together sort of side by side. Um, and sort of stretching, you know, farther back in graduate school, I was reading, I did undergraduate degree in philosophy and then did a couple graduate degrees, master's degrees in sort of Christian theology, but always linking Christian theology with some sort of uh, arts and media kind of thing. And then by the time I got to my PhD, I just really moved away from, I uh, just got more into comparative religions and sort of theories of religion and theories of modern art and tried to figure out how those things could <laughs> fit together. Um, and so I did a lot of work on uh, contemporary video art and installation art and, um, you know, still very much uh, appreciate that, but I, I've sort of stopped researching in that um, uh, more and more. So now I've uh, moved, in, and all along I've just always loved film, and uh, kind of began reading. You know, back in the '90s, as I was going through graduate school, um, began you know finding a group of people who were kind of doing some work in religion and film, and it was about the time, uh, oh, Oswald Martin's uh, "Screening the Sacred" came out, and Margaret Miles' uh, "Seeing as Believing." And uh, there were a few others uh, before there. John May had done a couple books. And uh, most of the early stuff was on the European auteurs. You know, there's always some um, stuff on Tarkovsky and Fellini and um, Bergman and uh, people like that, and which, you know, still like, love, love, all those, uh, love all those directors. Then another wave came in and sort of looked at the popular um, – popular film and I was kind of in between I kind of I like the uh, the art house cinema but also like the popular stuff and began to kind of teach in a way that incorporated both of those and began to kind of research and realize I could actually write a paper and get it uh, you know get something published on watching by watching films <laughs> uh, some other readings as well so that was that was kind of motivated me and the students seemed to like it and you know my the administrators at the schools I taught at liked it because classes filled up in general so sort of a win-win situation uh, of course the problem you know is always uh, trying to convince students that you know we're not just here to watch movies we're here to think about movies and write critically about movies and uh, that takes that's where the real rub comes um, but uh, but it's it's been fun to do um, so along the way really film I, I've sort of I've done few publications in film and religion and film but it's always I've always sort of for my own life I've seen it as a side hobby you know something that was just one of the one of the ways that uh, the kind of interests I have in religious studies uh, got manifest. Um, it's just that I think a number of 
publishers were out looking for books and religion and film and uh you know students kept coming and wanting to do projects in religion and film so i've kept uh i've kind of kept up that research and kept up that publishing along the line but i really sort of see myself more as uh, someone who looks at comparative religions through material culture uh that's really how i define myself more more specifically so i'm interested in the 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 sights and the smells and the sounds and the touches that uh, different religious traditions uh, encourage in their practitioners and the way the practitioners um engage the senses and engage with material objects uh, as part of their religious traditions. And I find that to be much more of a primary thing than reading the texts and talking about, you know, God's omnipotence or omniscience or uh, the problem of evil. I find uh, kind of the basic sensual material encounters to be really the primary basis of religion um, far, far far before the kind of abstractions of the angels and demons and attributes of god um not that those aren't important it's just uh, a different way of approaching the various um comparative religions um so yeah so then along the line just been doing work on uh on on film and so to, to get back to the film stuff um this I uh, did a did a few books, uh, edited books on religion and film in various ways, and tried to look at uh, you know world cinema and try to suggest that it's not just Hollywood that's doing films with some sort of religious interest, but we begin to look around the world. We see a huge uh, production uh, in many different places with religious themes, and the problem is, us, you know, scholars in North America certainly. Um, kind of just don't see it because we're so uh, dominated by our Hollywood view of the world and whatever's playing at the local multiplex uh, that we forget that, you know, how much amazing stuff is going on in other parts of the world. So I edited a few books along those lines and then it sort of finally led me to think, I need to just write my own book. <laughs> so I uh, got this, began talking with Wallflower Press in, in London and uh, the uh, editor there, uh, Yoram Allen, who's a great, uh, great guy and a great editor. And uh, he was working with Wallflower and doing a shortcuts series. And these are all short books that are, you know, I can't remember page or word number, something like 30,000 30, words, 35,000 words, maybe. It's, you know, they're meant to be very short books. And mine, um, mine was certainly short. I mean, I think it's with everything, it's a little over 100 pages. So it's a, it's a, it's a small book. Um, so the book, yeah, the book, uh, gave me a chance to sort of put together some of my own ideas that I've been thinking about as I've been working in the other, other areas along the way. Yeah. And you can see how your, your broader interest in material culture or kind of the, the central aspects of religion come through in your, your, your reading of film. Hmm, um, what, uh, uh, maybe since a lot of people might not be familiar with kind of this, this field of, uh, religion and film studies. Uh, yeah. Maybe you could tell us what your book does not do, uh, kind of outline the, the field for us a little bit, and then describe how, how this book kind of takes a, a different direction. Mm, yeah, good. Well, what it, what it doesn't do, and I was just noticing, I was looking through some other books where um, a few of us will be at the AAR this year, and we're running a session on, uh, um, what do we call it, Facing Forward, no, uh, looking back, facing forward, something like that. It's sort of a trying to be up, looking at the state of religion and film studies, you know, where they are right now. And so they'll have four of us there who've re, re, done books on the topic in recent years. Um, 
And so John Lydon's book, uh, Film as Religion, from about 10 years ago now, and my book, and then two uh, brand new books, uh, one by Antonio Sison and uh, on world cinema and the theology and the human, and uh, one by Sheila Nair on orality and literacy in um, Indian, uh, South Asian films. So the four of us will be talking. And so I've, I've been thinking about these, you know, variety of sort of going back and looking at this history of the field in preparation for the AAR, um, realizing so many of the other books, chapters are based on individual films. So, you know, here's a film, I'm going to talk about this film for the whole chapter, and here's the themes that come up out of the film. Um, and some of them might have been motivated by particular interests. You know, I want to talk about evil, so I'm going to pick you know, this film to talk about evil and the problem of evil. Um, what I wanted to do is get away from the idea of film as a whole, as, as a kind of a cohesive narrative, which, you know, certainly it is. I just I wanted to sort of chop it up and pay more attention to individual scenes and focus our attention on the, you know, specific audio-visual dimensions of the format you know what does it look like what does it sound like what are they wearing where is it set you know how tall are some of the people where is the camera um uh and and questions like that and how you know how quickly is it edited and uh, what is the strategies for editing and by looking at just individual scenes rather than entire movies I, i think it sort of freed me up to develop themes in religion more broadly so i you know one chapter takes on myth, one chapter takes on ritual, um, and uh, and so forth. So it uh, allowed a kind of different different way of doing things. Uh, I think the other thing is, you know, like I said before, I think the difference is that I tried to mix up. Some of them are very popular films. The, you know, I talk about The Matrix and Star Wars in there. Uh, some of them are more kind of art house films. Um, some of them kind of were crossovers. Films like uh, Chocolat uh, with uh, Johnny Depp and Juliette Binoche were kind of an art house film, but kind of you know got fairly popular as well. Um, and then some avant-garde film, you know, things by Stan Brackage and others that, you know, really nobody, almost nobody in religious studies has really written about at all or paid much attention to, even though it's uh, deeply religious work. So I tried to, you know, break from – those are kind of the two main ways. Uh, I think the mixture of the varieties of film that I incorporated uh, as well as not doing films as a whole, uh, looking at particular scenes and uh, letting the themes run it, run the um, – course of the conversation so i wanted to talk about myth so i went through several films to look at myth or i wanted to talk about ritual um so rather than being bound by one film and having to stick to that try to open that up um we we keep uh, repeating this word religion 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 um, mm-hmm. often uh and for centuries religion has been thought of uh in ways of, of doctrines of teachings of beliefs of things like this mm-hmm. uh, you you propose that we understand it as uh, as worlds. You use the word worlds, and you talk about this right. idea of world making. Can you can you kind of yeah. talk about this idea of world making and how that relates to religion? Yeah, I was really um, 
uh, really comes to me through the work of uh, William Payton uh, when I was at the University of Vermont working side-by-side with, uh, with Bill there. And uh, he did a book, um, I think it's 20 years old now, uh, called Religious Worlds. And uh, he really pulls on other thinkers. He's really doing sort of sort of there's Durkheim in there and certainly some Gertz and uh, folks like that who are sort of proposing this idea of, uh, you know, that religion creates a world. And uh, it's, it's a world that we live in. And there's, so there's multiple worlds and they sort of overlap and they intersect. And we don't all, the, the idea that I think are just sort of very powerful in terms of the way we organize time and space. We all live in different worlds, you know, sort of simultaneously. We're, we're side, we're, you know, our next door neighbor is celebrating a different, uh, a different year. You know, if you're working on a Jewish calendar, or working on a Muslim calendar, or working on a uh, Buddhist calendar, right? It's it's not the same year everywhere. Uh, it's different years, and you can be walking next to somebody down the street and actually living in a different year. You know, I sort of, I, I. I just sort of became infatuated by that idea, you know, that we could do do such a thing. Um, and so the the idea of a religious world is that it's it's encompassing. It's something we live in. And this, of course, is important because you know, for my own work, religion is bodily based. You know, it's what we do with our bodies and our senses, and we create worlds by the ways we see and touch and smell and taste. And so to, to be able to think about that provides, I think, a fairly natural parallel then with uh, approaches to film. And films, what films do, I think each one creates its own world. And so the whole idea is that we enter into the world of the film, right? At the beginning, the the uh, the narrator, the guy with a deep voice uh, on the trailers always says, in a world where, you know, you're uh, bound to be free or something like that. And He's always saying that, you know, in a world where, and that's that's the introduction to these films, and they're not talking about religion, they're talking about, you know, very self-consciously, the film brings you into another world. So I wanted to sort of go toggle back and forth between the way films do that and the way religions do that in order to sort of hopefully illuminate both sides, that if we think about films and we sort of get the way, oh yeah, this, you know, things don't, things are a little bit different here in this world, uh, you know, the ugly guys get the beautiful girls, you know, and those kinds of things that just don't, you know, maybe don't happen in the real world unless you're, unless you're a rock star. And, uh, but, uh, so thinking about that and then, then, then taking that back into religion and thinking, oh yeah, religions, you know, aren't just about doctrine and reading texts. They're about living in worlds. It's about our space and our time, you know, organized, our, our space is organized in one direction, you know, maybe it points towards Jerusalem or Mecca or some other, some other place. And our whole orientation is different uh, because of the religious worlds that we live within. Um, so it's a very physical concept, uh, I think, which I, which I liked a lot. And uh, so the, the, the goal was really to adapt, I, I think, sort of filtered a lot through a very, very um, clearly, you know, influenced by, by Payton's sort of take on all of that. And Payton, I, you know, love, still use it all the time for my classes, uh, Payton's book, Religious Worlds, uh, as ways to kind of think about religion in these broader uh categories um 
so yeah, so like you know, sometimes teaching world religions, and you know, you get to these kind of older models where you do Judaism and Christianity and Islam, and you know, yeah, we have a sacred text, we have a founder, and all that kind of stuff, and then you get to Buddhism, you've got the founder, but you don't have quite the single sacred text, you don't have quite the same structure, and they're sort of not the omnipotent God there, and so it caused you know for so many years caused the, the Westerners to say, well, it's not a religion, it's a way of life. I <laughs> sort of thought, well, so religion's not a way of life. You know, what a, what a strange concept to sort of contrast religion with a way of life. Um, and I think what Worlds does is it brings that to, to, together, right? So it says, you know, religion is a way of life. It's, you know, you can't, can't think of it any um, – I mean, you can't think of it other ways, but uh, it, it certainly doesn't exist that way for the way people actually experience it. Yeah. Um, so part of this world making process, uh, and what how you kind of structure parts of the book, um, is you you talk about the the role of myth and the role of ritual. Can you talk yeah. about how this uh, plays into world making? Yeah. So the the, the inter, you know I think the introductions are so important when we're dealing with myth, right? The beginnings of uh, the Hebrew scriptures and Christian scriptures. You know, in the beginning. Always got to have the setting, and a myth is a good story. You know, one one way or another, it's telling a story and telling a narrative, and it's got to have a beginning. And it's got to have a setting. So, um, you know, in the beginning, when God was creating the heavens and the earth, you know, we get the we get the time and the place, and it just you know parallels so well the the, the prologue to. Um, Star Wars, you know, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And, the, you know, film is introducing us to these other worlds. And it's just that, that introduction of the setting, you know, where are you and when are you, you know, and the film's introduce us it's the, it's the thing of all stories you know it doesn't have to be myth stories it doesn't have to be anything else stories that are always doing that what film does is it tells or what, what religion does and some films do is tell these grander stories you know about um something that's pertaining to all of us you know in the beginning you know implied is it's the beginning of everything the beginning of the world is is beginning um so I think myth sets up the stories in that in that way. And by looking at the introduction, so what I do is in the book and what I do in classes as well is I, I play a bunch of you know clips from films. Show the first two minutes of films. Um, I think in the book I talked about Blue Velvet. I talked about Star Wars uh, and these similar kinds of uh, introductions to the worlds that that borrow this mythic language, but also a visual uh, kind of vocabulary where up means one thing and down means another thing and there's this you know the here the here below is in connection with the up above and we work out our life in between these kind of two realms in this medieval cosmology and film film replicates that uh, it borrows these sort of cosmic mythological structures where if you want to make a point about something you tilt the camera up up to the clouds up to the sky and you're sort of saying something cosmic about, you know, the here below uh, when you do that. So trying to translate the, the, the mythic, the storytelling of mythology that has been going on for, you know, thousands and thousands of years around the world, trying to translate that into a visual vocabulary. What, what, is, what is the camera person doing when they're moving the camera side to side or when they're going up and down and how that uh, impacts our way of seeing, uh, inter- introducing ourselves into this world and, uh, cre- you know, inserting ourselves as the spectators, as the audience into this world 
uh, where we know what is up and we know what is down. We know what's to our left and know what's to our right. So I think the structures of mythology, of storytelling, of setting, of putting ourselves in a place and a time and trying to get back to that time by retelling the story, uh, again, it's kind of a, a, like a similar thing that, that film is, is doing. Religion and film are analogous then on these kinds of um, methods. And then, of course, the, the question is, you know, what – and then myth, of course, is about, you know, these creation myths about st- the beginnings of things long ago, but there's also the hero myths, um, which I didn't deal with much in the book and uh, sort of ran out of space on that and might be for some other project. But, uh, of course, every other film is a, is a hero myth in some, some sort of way, shape, or form. Um, and uh, so the mythologies have been providing these stories as, as, as Hollywood is, is sort of finally uh, figuring out in the last 10 years, of course, it's just sort of whole-scale borrowing of the ancient myths from around the world and retelling these stories. And, you know, you don't really need to, an original idea when the story from 3,000 years ago works quite well. It's just, you know, get a screenwriter to adapt the old story. And, uh, you know, we've got the narrative structure in place. Um, let's, uh, let's just go with that. Uh, so, so the storyline is there. The, the myths provide a storyline that the films can replicate and uh, put into a particular audiovisual language. Um, and then, similarly, with uh, with rituals, uh, similar kinds of things that you hear the anthropologists talk about ritual, and they talk about ritual as providing a frame, you know, set apart time and a set apart space. And of course, that's exactly what. Um, uh, what, what films are doing too. They're setting apart a particular time and a particular space. Um, so, the, so again, the, the, the idea of analogy, I think what I was trying to do throughout the first two chapters anyway on myth and ritual is to provide analogies to say uh, film is analogous to myth, film is analogous to ritual. Uh, the way it structures and getting back to these root things of space and time. Space and time is altered in the film. Space and time is altered in a religious world. Um, hopefully that yeah, makes makes sense there. Yeah, and uh, yeah, in the book you're definitely successful in, in kind of delineating this and I... I you know, it makes total sense that these two are analogous, but you—you, you, uh, it's not as obvious as uh, after after reading your book, it, it seems. Yeah. Um, uh, could you talk a little bit about this idea of mise en scene and and how this uh, how this figures into kind of portraying mythologies? Because when yeah. we think of myth, yeah. we also think of stories, right? Just what the story tells right. us. But, yeah, exactly. but how does this uh, how does this figure? Exactly. Yeah. So I, you know, this is, I think one of the things that I, I think my book did a little bit differently than most of the others. Other books have certainly compared, you know, mythologies to, to, to film, of course, and it's kind of a natural, natural thing there. Um, but to, but to get more, you know, into the details of the scene, you know, of how things are set up, you know, so to include things like, uh, so in mise-en-scene, you're dealing with things like props and costume and lighting, and it's sort of the the look of everything that goes into the frame, you know, the, this color scheme that's in there, the, the setup, the placement of characters in relation to each other, and of course you have kind of the set, the, you know, production designers are working with the camera people and the directors, and they're all sort of thinking about this together. Um, 
but to but to but to look at the you know does a color mean something the fact that a certain col- person is wearing a certain color at a certain time and yes it does <laughs> i get in these conversations with people who say oh you know it's just uh you know the a- acting as if the actor just sort of came off the streets woke up in the morning and uh you know she said i think i'm going to wear a pink dress today and that's what she wore onto the set you know well you know no it doesn't doesn't work that way you know it's uh, they're highly created there's you know hundreds of people People running around trying to figure out what's the right color, what's the length of the dress, you know, um, you know how, how is it going to you know appear on the person? Um, these are not none of these none of these things. Nothing within a film is accidental, and you know, trying to convince a, kind of surprising how difficult that can be to convince people, um, you know, that that's that it, it's not just by chance that that person was wearing that color. And that, you know, it may be as simple as that color makes them stand out from the other people. Um, you know, and you see it in, in certain films. Of course, uh, Schindler's List had this, you know, wonderful use of the sort of pink coat, the sort of hand-tinted, uh, hand-colored uh, pink coat that sort of, you know, created this uh, light motif throughout the whole film and it kept appearing at different places and the use of color there of course a fairly very blatant use of color of course um, but but evocative nonetheless you don't have to say anything you know, all you have to do is show this coat in a few different places you should, you know you, you realize what is happening this mini mini story is going on in Schindler's list just by these you know I, I can't even remember it's four or five images of this of this coat uh, this little girl's coat and um, you, you get a whole story just out of that. It could be a short. It could be. It could have been a two-minute short film, and uh, just showing these things without any words at all. Um, and that, so there's a powerful story going on with the images. And you know, so I'm trying to get my students to read these images and to think, what difference does it make? Um, so one of the things I use the example in the Matrix uh, when they when the characters come out of the you know the so-called real world into the into the Matrix, they're always wearing either you know leather or rubber, you know, this kind of fetish fetishistic clothes um but they're all you know the the idea of these they're second skins and it's uh sort of sort of as they're avataring you know they become these avatars in the matrix um what they're what they're wearing at the same time as a second skin though a lot pretty much most of it is leather right so they're wearing the skin of another animal when they go out there so there's this layering effect going on that's that you know emphasizes the otherworldness of the of the you know the the matrix and the and the real world within the film um again these kind of things are you know very much on in done on purpose right there's there's a lot of thought that goes into these things um and and you know just to think about characters just to look at the placement of characters uh, i think about a clip i show to my students from apocalypse now and um uh, we're introduced to the Robert Duvall character and the camera. When we first first really get an introduction to him, they're sort of around a campfire at night, um, and the camera is really low to the ground, and it's looking up, and all all the sort of soldiers are kind of sitting down, and Duvall's kind of standing there above him, and he's sort of this dominating figure, you know, above the rest, and he gives this, you know, hard ass masculine warrior kind of speech, and. Um, you know, just so the the visuality is is reemphasizing the words he's saying, 
And of course, most of us will go away and remember the words that he said, and maybe not the way it was set up. But both of these things are equally important uh, in the whole structure of that. So I, I think mise, by, by focusing on mise en scène, it allows us to, uh, you know, allows us to kind of think specifically about individual scenes um, rather than this duration of the narrative. You know, what happens when this happens and this happens and this happens? To so think about space as much as time. Uh, mise en scène allows these kind of snapshots to discover what's going on in the space of the film. Um, I th- and I think, that, I think that's kind of a problem we, you know, film study scholars, I think, fall into the same kind of trap that, um, you know, people from religious studies approaching film do. We want to think about it as this duration. We, we, we tend towards time and we tend to think of the whole story and we put it in verbal terms of story rather than thinking about these individual spaces of, of the scenes. And um, so I think we need to be a little more attentive uh, to the visual spaces that the films are creating for us. Yeah, and uh, in in the second chapter, you you focus on the role of cinematography in creating this space. Can you explain hmm. that a little bit? Yeah, yeah, a bit of uh, sort of what I was you know saying uh, before uh, the beginning of Star Wars. Of course, you've got that prologue uh, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Right, you've got wonderful mythic language. Tells you the when and the where. Of course, like all mythic language, it's it's, always, it's ambiguous language, right? It doesn't tell you, you know, in the year eighteen fifty five, you know, at sunset, such and such happened. Um, it's you know a long time ago, and it's this ambiguous how well how long is a long time ago? And of course, um, if you're you know my daughter in the in the in the car, and we're sort of driving, running around doing errands, and like oh how long till we get there? You know, it's ten minutes right to get over to the next town and get go to the store in the next town. Ten minutes is a long time to my daughter. At this point. Uh, you know, and of course to a historian, it might be you know a few hundred years is a long time, or you know if you're a paleontologist, uh, you know a few million years is a long time. So what does it mean to say long? It's totally ambiguous language. It just it just the important thing it was before you know star wars tells us a long time ago so something that happened in the past not sure how long ago it was and it throws us off because it's kind of sci-fi and there's all these things in this world that you know laser beams that we we can't do in in our world even though it was before in time you know it's this curious setting so it, it introduces that the language but then it immediately what you see in star wars the beginning is shot of the stars. It's a black screen with just stars there. And then you get the triumphant sort of prologue telling you what happened. And then right after the words trail off the screen at the beginning of Star Wars, the camera just stays still for a second. You're just sort of left with this really nice music. All the percussive, heavy percussive music drops out and you've got this piccolo and it's just very gentle for about three seconds and you're just looking at the stars and the, here's the cosmos. Everything is right in the cosmos. And then the percussion starts up and the camera tilts down and you see the, the spaceships you know, fighting each other, shooting lasers at each other and we see the top of a planet uh, sort of emerge and we're not really sure which planet it is or where it is but um, you know, obviously chaos and war are happening. So in a very simple kind of way you know, it's, it's doing this visually. The camera points up to the stars and here's the cosmos, right? Here's the ordered world and then it tilts down to the so up above is the star down below is the wars and you know within within five seconds you've encapsulated the title and the sort of introduction to the thing just by a camera movement um 
up is the stars, up is the cosmos, down is the wars, down is the chaos. And that, you know, one simple little camera move kind of uh, inaugurates uh, that kind of thing. Um, so again, the, the, you know, placement of the camera, you know, shots from far away, close up shots, and then, you know, getting into, you know, examples of the, of the face, then close ups of the face and what those might entail and the power and the emotions that, um, of course, certain camera people and directors are able to get out of performers, uh, by close, you know, close up of, uh, you know, Greta Garbo's face or, um, you know, uh, Emily Watson in Breaking the Waves, I think, is a is a really good example of that. Lars von Trier's <clears throat> Breaking the Waves, his constant close ups of Emily Watson's face and her eyes, just to, you know, just sort of mesmerizing these uh, these shots in the middle of it. So that's you know, again, part of the, the the feel, the emotional pull of the film relies on those kind of. Um, close-ups, you know, a, a decision about where to put the camera, how to frame the scene, uh, and what, what, what kind of resonances that might have with the audience. Can you talk a little bit about the role of editing? Because this, this becomes important in, in our sense of time. Yeah, exactly. So the, um, um, yeah, so that read somewhere, uh, that, you know, your average 90 minute action adventure film has something like 3000 or 4,000 cuts in it. Um, so, you know, the shot is changing 3000 times. So it's like every, you know, seconds, I mean, every, every couple seconds you're seeing a new image and it's just flashing by you constantly. And so there's the, the tempo, right? Is you get part of, it's not just blowing cars up. It's blowing cars up from five different angles and shooting them one out another, you know, at you as you're watching it. So it's, it's meant to kind of disrupt your sense of calm and keep you, you know, literally on the edge of your seat. Um, so editing, you know, the perfection of, of editing, I, I really sort of believe is the most, Probably, and I'm not alone in this, but but the the most powerful dimension of film. That's that's the most probably understated by most of us kind of novices from the from the outside of the of the industry. Um, it's just extremely powerful uh, on our sense of time, on our sense of uh, perception, on the way we um, encounter the worlds that are on screen. So, you know, doing it slow slow edits you know where you just let a scene unfold Woody, Woody Allen I think is you know part of what makes Woody Allen films just sort of fun to watch is he lets his he lets his characters talk and he you know he's pulling on a long European tradition of doing this uh, Bergman especially and, and others but you know he sets up two characters and will just kind of he gives them a script but then they kind of just talk to each other and it's the camera will follow people you know around the streets of Manhattan for you know a full minute or two before he pulls the camera away from him and you're so so there you get embedded into a conversation you know the world that he's creating is is the city streets you know walking around uh but also the conversation between two people and that's the kind of world you you get pulled into and you know woody allen and, and other people as well um 
so the, you know how the how are you going to work with the editing so that, that and again I think there's a lot of direct parallels and uh, analogies to the way uh, religious rituals work and certainly if you compare perhaps you know uh, an older older form of Christianity more traditional form of Christianity and uh, you know the the rites and the rituals are sort of prolonged and they sort of take a lot of time and they're sort of drawn out and it's meant to put you in a state of calm. Whereas the newer, you know, we look at the emergent church or, you know, other um, kind of evangelical, uh, you know, in these mega churches, you know, it's, it's, it's like a music video. It's just sort of, it's constantly changing. They're playing music. You know, there's multiple things going on at the same time. It's, it's, you know, it's not editing in the strict sense of it, but the sense of what editing does is provides a rhythm and a pace to uh, to a film, and it's similar kind of thing you can analogize then to um, uh, re- religious rituals and the performance of them. Because um, some some are slow and religious rituals, and some are fast, and we get a different feeling coming away from them based on the slowness and the fastness of it. it. It changes our pace, changes our you know. I mean, we can actually go in and we can take the pulse and take the heart rate of people watching a film and you know you th- these things impact us you know they they're not just escapes they actually change our body our our heart beats differently when we watch an action film and when we watch a sort of you know documentary nature film you know or something just very slow moving you know literally our body is is affected is uh, completely touched by these films and our our heart will move differently our nervous system moves differently uh, based on these images and the sounds that we're hearing so editing editing is kind of at the heart of a a lot of that and uh, the, the the pace of things of course, it's, it's, of course, it's about music. Of course, it's about what's shown on scene as well. But editing provides a certain sense of pace. And I think then that, you know, that sort of what I, what I also tried to do a little bit, though, you know, it's just too small a book to do this, is to try to take this back, use these kinds of models for looking at film to go back and, you know, become an anthropologist and look at religious ritual and to say, you know, to think more deeply about the aesthetic uh, framing of time and space in rituals. You know, is it meant to be fast? Is it meant to be slow? What's going on with, uh, with the changes uh, in those kinds of things? Um, and in the third chapter, you, you do focus on, on this idea of the body. And, um, I, I think you use the term visual ethics. I'm wondering if you could talk about this idea of, of ethics and how that's encountered through film. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's something I've, I've been toying with for a number of years and uh, actually was worked with a couple of people at Case Western, oh, gosh, probably five years ago now. We actually set up a conference, set up a symposium one, one weekend there on visual ethics. And uh, we sort of sort of <laughs> had this plan to kind of launch this kind of new field of study. I mean, you see, you see the term around uh, visual ethics and it's usually – been predominantly under the guise of uh, journalism and photojournalism, you know, and how much uh, do photojournalists, you know, especially in an age of Photoshop, you know, how much are you just recording what's going on or how much are you manipulating it? And, um, you know, these incredible uh, discussions, this one guy, I think it was in Florida somewhere, sort of kind of small paper, but uh, went out and took a picture of a burning building and it was a pretty intense scene, you know, it was just kind of local, local news, you know, I don't think anybody got hurt, but, you know, here was this building burning, and he got this great picture of a fireman up in the ladder, you know, sort of spraying this building, and 
he came back and when he when he sort of really looked at the pictures, it, it didn't get the intensity that was there. And so he photoshopped. He just made it more an orange background. All he did was really change the color of the background and wanted to intensify it and you know just sort of look more dramatic with the with the kind of Photoshop changes. And he felt he actually felt like it was more in tune with what he actually saw um, rather than what was there in the digital bits on his camera. And he got fired for it for manipulating this picture and it became this kind of you know interesting kind of study in you know how do we record reality what are the what are our ethics of recording the world out there and how you know how do we ever be true to that so we so i'm sort of been you know continually interested in that how do the how do we get an ethical sense of um this as an ethical film viewers um you know, I, I, there's just no question that Hollywood has continued to be racist and sexist and homophobic and, you know, just sort of moving, you know, incredible amounts of uh, our cultural, um, you know, our cultural, our sort of morality, you know, of, of how we engage with each other is deeply influenced. So I think there's a, you know, part of me, I, I'm happy to sort of be, you know, someone who sort of wants to res- resist that and try to get my students to kind of resist the, uh, you know, heteronormative um, kinds of ideas that you get in Hollywood again and again, uh, and try to be, you know, not not passive consumers, but, uh, you know, sort of active participants, which doesn't mean you can't enjoy the films uh, by, by any means, but um, there, there can be other ways to, to do. So by visual ethics, I'm interested in, you know, being an active critical viewer and participant in films um, to think about what's going on as far as, uh, you know, especially uh, race and uh, class and sex and gender, um, how these things get portrayed on film and how we might um, think about them, you know, differently, so, you know, be able to come away from a film and say, well, that was good here and there, but, you know, this, this part was a little bit problematic and yeah, I bring that up in in relation for example to the matrix in my book and you know I, I, I like the matrix I show it to my classes all the time and it's interesting mixture of mythology so you've got the Christian mythology and you've got this Buddhist mythology and they're sort of kind of woven together so Neo is both this Bodhisattva character as well as this messianic character um, and he sort of kind of you know plays between the two mythologies and then there's a couple other things mixed in there too so you know it's a wonderful wonderful film as, as far as you know mixing all these things together uh but then in the end of course it's it's the same kind of thing you, you start out with a strong uh black man and a strong woman you know in the form of you know truly it's trinity uh carrie played by carrie ann moss and uh, Lawrence fishburne's character of morpheus the two of them are the strong ones and the knowledgeable ones in the beginning and then in the end, it just turns around. So it's this, you know, Keanu Reeves, the good-looking white guy, you know, comes in and saves the day. He's just totally clueless and everything. But in the end, somehow, the black man and the and the woman are, are just props for the good-looking white guy again. And he's the one who really saves everybody. Um, you know, I sort of I just think, okay, this, you know, here's this great film and all this wonderful stuff going on, all this kind of alternative worlds and alternative realities, and then it just falls back in the same old Hollywood myth, right? Of uh, uh, Black man, white woman, save the good-looking white guy. And the Hollywood myth triumphs over 
any of the Buddhist and Christian sort of myths uh, in the end. So I think it's a part of, part of it is I think is just a little bit of kickback, a little bit of critical resistance to some of those uh, conclusions that get drawn in Hollywood. Um, uh, and then the other side is, is, you know, I think visual ethics and I bring out the idea of the, the face and, the, the close-up and sort of engaging with film, you know, allowing oneself to be drawn into the film and seeing what film allows us is to see something that, you know, we can't possibly see with unaided human eye. It's a, it's a created world and it brings worlds of far away uh, to us in the here and now. And I think allowing ourselves, you know, a suspension of, of disbelief and, and allowing ourselves to be transported is, is important at the same time. So I'm really you know, kind of talking about a push and pull at the same time. You know, I don't – it shouldn't just be totally critical where I just walk away disgusted with every film. But, it, and, but I also shouldn't just let myself be drawn into everything as well. So I think a certain amount of, you know, sort of an old believer in education and <laughs> being able to practice these kinds of things uh, that uh, might bring us to a, a, a better state of film viewing. And, you know, ultimately it would be wonderful if we'd have some impact on um, on kinds of films Hollywood uh, makes. And, you know, just every, every year, you know, we get this new batch of questions, you know, well, where are all the female directors in Hollywood, you know, and it's sort of like... <laughs> Catherine Bigelow comes along and wins an award one year and it's great. And then it's like, well, same old thing next year. And, you know, it's all, all the people up are, you know, are men. Um, you know, it just, it's, it's a industry dominated by, uh, you know, white men and white, uh, white men's sort of views of the world that, um, yeah, I, th- I think it's, you know, it's, it's time for a lot of that to change and change is slow in coming, but it's, it's happening. Sure. In the in the last chapter, you you uh, you, you have this phrase: the uh, film has left the movie theater. And I, I'm wondering if you could kind of elaborate on this this idea. Yeah, I tried to you know think about it, it's one thing to look at films um, and to analyze their you know narrative content, do a formal analysis of films, and say this happened and this happened, and here's what this means. Um, but then to sort of think about how that how that comes off the screen and impacts our everyday lives. And, you know, there's been some movement in this, especially in film studies, sort of social scientific uh, approaches, kind of doing, you know, various questionnaires and trying to do this. But they're just always fairly unsatisfying, I think, to most people who look at them because, they, you know, they don't you get this range of responses. But, you know, it's really hard to because I, I think the thing is people don't really get exactly what goes on in the movie theater. And, you know, nobody's really clear how it actually impacts us. I mean, I very rarely could come out of a film and say, you know, here's what, here's what I got, you know, here's what, here's what happened to me. Um, and so I try to take a little bit different approach because I think it's important not just to sort of say, well, I'm going to interpret the matrix for you and show you that, uh, you know, by wearing leather, they were saying this and that when, you know, 95% of the people who watched the matrix didn't get that at all. And, you know, there's a little bit of, um, you know, I wanted to sort of think about what people did do with movies, um, you know, how they, how they impact us. So, um, so my, my take on it was to, you know, explore various cultural manifestations of the movies and how they've, you know, directly influenced, gone back and changed the way religion operates. And so, you know, looked at a number of ways, um, 
you know, bar and bat mitzvahs and baptisms and weddings and these, uh, you know, these general, you know, religious rituals, I mean, arguably sort of cultural, relig- cultural uh, rituals, but the way they've been impacted by film in a variety of ways. Um, so everything from the, um, you know, you can get a Star Wars wedding done, you know, sort of theme wedding of Star Wars or, a, you know, they did the Terminator uh, bar mitzvah and you know, th- things like that. So the way these, these these films sort of impact, you know, here's people some very significant times in people's lives, and you know, granted, maybe a twelve year old, uh, you know, has a limited idea of <laughs> what the, what the world is all about and what's important to them, and uh, so the Terminator or Star Wars might be might be really what they're about. Um, of course, the funny the funny thing is they the Woody Allen. I can't remember which Woody Allen film it was, but uh, where he actually had the actually had a portrayed within his film actually had the bar the star wars bar mitzvah and those, the little boy cutting a cutting his cake with a lightsaber and things like that it was just uh, quite quite funny but these things do go on yeah you know in everyday life you know these kinds of um actually i'd a uh, former student of mine sent me a sent me a picture uh, a couple years ago. Her brother had gotten married, and they did a Matrix style, and they all wore these uh, leather outfits and uh, sunglasses to the uh, to the wedding. Um, so you know they, they do have you know maybe that, that's partly trivial, but the fact is you know again at some point weddings a fairly important thing you know in in uh, contemporary life and a pretty important uh, decision and activity, and people are deciding to. Um, you know, make it turn turn the turn the wedding ritual itself into the theme of a particular movie. Uh, I think it's kind of kind of telling. Um, and so, what kind of invents you know, film? I mean, just sort of a, a number of these kinds of examples. Part of what I wanted to show is that you know, this it it has this impact in our culture and on our religious life and our sense of rituals. Um, so, the midnight movie kind of phenomenon of Rocky Horror Picture Show and, and and films like that. You know, where people go again and again and they dress up for it and they you know you, uh, or the opening of the you know whatever the latest Harry Potter installment or Lord of the Rings installment you know they always do these sort of midnight movies and everybody dresses up and you go and you stand in line and it's just it's a it's this ritual that uh, you know occurs you know people sort of in our kind of quasi secular world um, people looking for a sense of belonging a sense of identity and you know not that somebody's going to say I am Bilbo Boggins but uh, uh, you know, there, there's a sense of community that's built, and, and people love to love to do this kind of stuff. And uh, and film cinema provides that context, I think, for so many people these days. That it's a it's a fascinating phenomenon that um, you know how things revolve around films. If you go to the New Zealand Tourist Board, the official New Zealand uh, Board of Tourism, uh, if you go to their site online, right at the home page is you know is uh, tours of Middle Earth you can find, you know, and and the tourist industry in New Zealand has gone up, you know, a huge percentage uh, after the Lord of the Rings. Um, so you know they ever build themselves as the re- you know because you know so many of us know that Lord of the Rings was filmed in New Zealand, and so if I really want to visit Middle Earth, I have to go to New Zealand. You know, um, <laughs> forget the fact that you know it's a fantasy story about a place that doesn't actually exist. Um, People are spending thousands of dollars to fly to New Zealand to tour Middle Earth. I mean, granted, it's a beautiful place. Sure, and I'd <laughs> want to go there just to see it. But, uh, <laughs> um, you know, it, it films change our cultural landscapes in this way. And we go on pilgrimages to, to various sites to 
you know, see to stand where, where, where Bilbo once stood, you know, um, that kind of thing, or stand where Rocky once stood. I, I start off the final chapter looking at the, the footsteps of Rocky. And uh, at the top of the steps of the Philadelphia Museum of Art are in bronze are these converse high top uh, kind of uh, tread marks. And it's, a, you know, like Rocky stood here and they're actually there. You know, there's actually a physical place at the top of the stairs, you know, overlooking downtown Philadelphia. And it's, uh, you know, because that's where this great scene in the first Rocky Sylvester Stallone movie, you know, he goes running up the stairs and he stands at the top and he, you know, waves his arm in the air. And so people from all over the world will come and stand in those footsteps and get pictures of themselves taken. You go online and just find hundreds and hundreds of pictures from people from, you know, from China and India and Africa and Europe and all across the United States. They want to go and stand where Rocky once stood. Um, now, of course, it's and it says Rocky, you know, in the in the floor, you know, but of course, Rocky's a character on film. You know, it's not a real person. <laughs> it's, it was Sylvester Stallone playing the role of Rocky. You know, so there's these layers of fiction that we just sort of collapse and uh, to the point where I want to get my picture taken where Rocky was, you know, got his picture taken. Um, so the so film has this you know impact. It changes our physical life. It's I, you know trying to make the point in several different ways that it's not just separable. We can't just go to the theaters and come out of it and wash it off and say, oh yeah, I'm now back in the real world. Uh, these things are just much more uh, overlapping. Um, and so I try to play it, play with some of the ways that these overlaps happen between the between the two worlds, the world on screen and the world off screen. Yeah, and I, you, you do this very successfully, I think, and I, I think that's one of the, uh, well, at least for, for me, a novice in the field, uh, seems to be a good shift away from let's read the meaning of this film the same way I'd read the meaning of this text, and mm. let's let's see what's how this is all uh, coming together in, in kind of a lived reality. Um, I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about uh, your your role with the Journal of the American Academy of Religion, which uh, is really taking this idea of, of film uh, as a key medium for understanding religion. Uh, could you could you talk a little bit about what the journal is doing and your role in that? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Amir Hussein came on board as the uh, general editor of, of JAR, of Journal of American Academy of Religion, um, uh, two two years ago now. And um, he's Amir's always been interested in film, and actually was on the was one of the people leading the um, religion, film, and visual culture uh, group for uh, for several years. Was the chair of that group for several years, along with uh, John Lydon. And uh, he's, he's always he teaches courses in religion and film and uh, these kinds of things. He does does Islam as, as well, but um, uh, general courses in religion and film. So he's, he's always had this kind of visual interest and visual bent. And so when he came on board, he wanted to, um, you know, beef up the visual uh, dimensions. And so he's put in, you know, some photo essays. And like last issue, we had um, this, this great artist, uh, Sandal Burke, uh, did uh, several of his pieces from uh, the American Quran series that, he, that Burke is working on right now. Uh, and then he asked uh, John Lydon and I to come on board and to kind of oversee some, uh, I think we're calling them media essays. Um, it's hard to come up with the right term that would be kind of inclusive, but not uh, not open to everything either. 
so really uh, kind of asked me to kind of edit, you know, seek out some people and edit some people uh, or edit the work of some people to create short essays, um, you know, r- around three or four thousand words. They're not sort of full on articles, but, um, you know, bigger than just uh, don't want just a film review because uh, that doesn't work either. So trying to trying to insert, you know, the, the importance of these visual uh, dimensions within the study of religion. Um, so John Lydon contributed one on Star Wars, sort of the after effects of Star Wars, you know, what happens when, it's kind of like I was doing in my, my fourth chapter, you know, what happens when film comes off the screen. Uh, John sort of argues the, for the way Star Wars came off the screen and how it looks like a religion, not because what, you know, not, not arguing whether or not um, you know, Obi-Wan Kenobi or Luke Skywalker is a messianic figure or whether the force is, a, you know, is the Tao or something like that, but that it's a religion because people follow it like a religion. And the arguments, uh, endless arguments over certain scenes within Star Wars and the sort of almost Talmudic um, argumentation that goes on about what really happened in these specific scenes in Star Wars. Um, so it's a great kind of, um, you know, audience response uh, to Star Wars and arguing for the religiousness thereof. Um, Elijah Sigler just did a piece uh, in the most recent one on um, – David Cronenberg's uh, films and sort of arguing for Cronenberg as a secular auteur and that we need to, you know, in religious studies, we need to think about what, what it would mean to be, have a secular film. And in some ways, the point is that it's, it's really an anomaly, you know, to have a very secular film. There are, you know, so many films that are, are so infused with religious, you know, just, it may just be symbolism. It may just be a one-off kind of thing to sort of encapsulate some ideas. But nonetheless, it's sort of, uh, you know, they're based on these ancient mythological and ritualistic structures that it's almost, you know, I, I would argue that it's almost impossible to get away from religion film, Um you know, when you look at uh, look at most films around the world, I, I would argue that there's sort of religious bases for the creation of film itself. Um, so Cronenberg, you know, is really in some ways, as Ziegler tries to argue, it, it, getting away from all that and trying to create a real truly secular film. So a variety of ways. And I did, I did a piece on the, based on the Tree of Life, based on Terrence Malick's Tree of Life, um, but looking at the way the Tree of Life has functioned in mythological structures uh, visually throughout history, including Charles Darwin's own uh, Origin of the Species draws a Tree of Life diagram for that and introduced this idea of natural selection. Um, so you know how this sort of an- this ancient mythological symbol shows up again and again and then how – Terence Malick is just, in a sense, one of one of many people using this visual uh, visual image, this visual symbol to help create the mythology of the film. Um, so you know, trying to trying to approach a, a variety of ways that images and, and especially visual uh, or um, moving images. Uh, I'm trying to get a piece going on on video games right now and thinking about video games and the, the images therein uh, and how they function within our lives. So trying to again trying to trying to get away from just interpreting a film and giving a formal analysis of a film, uh, but trying to think about it in relation to culture and in relation to religious structures in one way or another. That's the that's the kind of goal of the AAR uh, journal. Trying to get those uh, get those essays going. Yeah, you've, you guys have done a great job so far. Um, before I let you go, Brent, could you just briefly tell us about uh, what you, what you're working on now or what might be coming out in the future? 
Uh, yeah, my um, yeah. Currently, I'm doing a book that really has uh, nothing to do with film. Uh, I'm sort of sort of happy to say I'm ready to get away from film. I think for a little bit and uh, do some other stuff. I'm writing a book uh, for Beacon Press. Uh, should be hopefully completed in the spring. Uh, it's called A History of Religion in Five and a Half Objects, and uh, I look at um, sort of the material. You know, again, the kind of sense-based ways we engage objects. So the objects are uh, crosses, incense, bread, drums, and stones. Each each one has a connection to one of the five senses. And uh, look at sort of cross-cultural, inner inner religious kinds of ways that uh, stones show up. For instance, their their use in um, um, as cairns, uh, the way they you know sort of function in ancient uh, structures like uh, like in Stonehenge, um, uh, as well as uh, more kind of personal personal ways people might collect a stone from some place they've been and bring it back with them as a kind of memento uh, of life. Um, so looking at, looking at these, these objects, these specific kind of objects uh, across religious traditions and how they've meant different things in different places and, you know, ultimately implicitly arguing that this is, this is the stuff of religion. This is, you know, religion begins with these material engagements. Great. Well, um, I appreciate your time and thanks again. Um, the book really, I think, uh, adds a lot to the conversation and makes it very accessible for, for newbies. So thank you. Good. You bet. Thank you. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Brent Plate about his new book, Religion and Film, Cinema and the Recreation of the World, which came out in 2008 from Wallflower Press.